Welcome to ReachMD. This activity entitled, Practicing Precision in ALK and ROS1 Rearrangement Positive Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Testing, Targets, and Treatments, is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this educational activity, Practicing Precision in ALK and Ross Rearrangement Positive Non-Small Cell Carcinomas, Testing, Targets, and Treatment. I am Maria Arcilla, and I am the lab director uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I am joined today with Dr. Alexander Drillon, who's the chief in the Early Drug Development Service, also at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So uh, here to start with, we have a few disclaimers and disclosures indicating that uh, we may be discussing off-label usage of approved agents or agents that are in development. And also we have our financial disclosure information for you to review. And here are the learning objectives for this activity. All right, so as you all know, uh, lung cancer is a highly heterogeneous disease that, his, uh, that historically has been classified based on the morphologic and immunophenotypic attributes of the cancer. Um, Non-small cell carcinoma constitutes the largest proportion of lung cancers, and within this category, adenocarcinoma is the largest subtype. Um, however, in the last decade, there have been major advances in molecular biology and diagnostics that have enabled a more precise classification now based on molecular attributes of the tumor. So um, on the right of this slide, what you can actually see is this subclassification of adenocarcinoma tumors based on the genetic alterations. While there are numerous genetic abnormalities that have been reported in recent years, only a proportion of these constitute uh, the well-characterized driver oncogenes. And it is these drivers, the ones that have moved the science forward as these are the ones that are the key targets that may be treated with alteration-specific therapies. Uh, common alterations in lung cancer include um, EGFR and KRAS, and those together constitute about 50% of the alterations that are identified in nanocarcinoma. However, after these, there are several alteration, uh, alterations that uh, each correspond to about 1% to 3% of the alterations in lung cancer, uh, but these are equally targetable. So it is, of course, very important to test for them. A high number of the alterations that are uh, targetable in lung cancer happen to be in receptor tires and kinases, and the remaining are identified in the, effector, uh, in the effectors of common downstream pathways that are associated, uh, associated with those kinases. Uh, mutations in EGFR are very common and now have been well known for over a decade, but more recently, fusions and rearrangements involving genes such as ROS1, and ALK, RET, and NTREC, and, uh, and rearrangements in MET as well have been identified. So that's going to be the topic uh, for us today. So very briefly, as far as biology is concerned, all of the genes that I've mentioned have common signaling pathways uh, where alterations that dysregulate their function uh, can have a major impact on the cells. Uh, very briefly, um, starting in this diagram with the pathway and activation and signaling that is associated with the mutations and diffusions that, um, that, that we're going to talk about, um, we can start with um, the EGFR pathway, which is common for all of them. So EGFR is a kinase that is bound to the cell membrane. And uh, in normal cell function, dimerizes after it is bound to its ligand. Following dimerization then and phosphorylation of these dimers, this activates several downstream pathways, primarily three pathways, which are the PI3 kinase, the STAT pathway, and the ras mapk pathway. And the signals from these three different pathways travel to numerous 
to, to the nucleus where they actually promote the survival and proliferation of the cells. This is, of course, a very highly regulated kind of pathway, or three, these three pathways are highly regulated, and any mutation or, um, or fusion can cause then disorganized proliferation uh, and the development of a neoplastic process. Um, ALK, RET, and ROS are very uh, are similar membrane-bound uh, proteins or receptors that dimerize, and they, when after ligand binding, physiologically they can activate exactly the same pathways as EGFR. Um, so uh, today, again, we're going to be concentrating on ALK and ROS. And both of these receptors uh, happen to be in the insulin family of receptors. They both have a number of domains in the extracellular compartment of the cell. And uh, a very large kinase domain in the intracellular compartment and also a transmembrane uh, domain that maintains the molecule stable within the, uh, uh, stably bound to the membrane. Um, importantly, ROS1 shares about 77 or to 80 percent sequence homology to ALK, uh, to ALK uh, in the ATP binding site of the tyrosine kinase domain. And this is actually responsible for the observation that some ALK inhibitors may profoundly inhibit uh, ROS1 kinase activity and lead to tumor regression. Uh, both of these genes may be rearranged, and in the process of rearrangement, they actually lose the attachment to the cell membrane so that the fusion is now a protein, a fusion protein that now lives in the cytoplasm or even in various other compartments of the cell, depending on the partner and the function of that fusion changes, depending on the partner um, that, they are, that they are bound to. Um, ALK fusions are not only found in lung carcinomas, in fact, they were first described in anaplastic large cell lymphomas, and hence the name ALK, which stands for anaplastic lymphoma kinase. Uh, fusions involving this gene may be identified in several malignancies and some with predilection for specific partners. Uh, they may, may be identified in lymphomas of different kinds. They could be identified in several solid tumors and are particularly prevalent in inflammatory myofibroblastic tumors, uh, for example. Um, ROS1 fusions uh, may be identified also in several solid tumors, and the highest number of partners has been reported um, in non-small cell cancers, which actually makes the biology and the detection of these uh, fusions within lung cancer quite difficult, um, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in the next few slides. So. Um, ROS1 and ALK as fusions themselves and the fusion protein ends up being highly heterogeneous because of all of the partners that it can um, associate with. Um, the most important thing, however, is that in all of the rearrangements, it actually requires that the fusion protein um, has a kinase domain that remains functional. So while the kinase domain remains funct functional and remains intact, then the associated portion of the different genes that uh, become the partners of, on these fusions are the ones that add the heterogeneity to these tumors. Um, so given the very high heterogeneity uh, that these tumors have and the location of the, of the fusion within the cell and, they, and, and whether the cytoplasm will, if they remain bind, bound to the cell membrane, um, testing actually may not be as simple as one would think. Uh, there are four main methods that are utilized right now to test this in clinical laboratories. Um, one of them being immunohistochemistry, and uh, which actually itself does not test for diffusion, but actually tests for expression of the protein um, either on the cell membrane or within the cytoplasm. So it is used as a surrogate for the presence of a fusion, but this provides no information on the partner or the breakpoint region. Um, on the other hand, you could use uh, fluorescent inside to hybridization or FISH, and this is a molecular method that is very good, but it's very low throughput, and it detects um, the break of the gene, but it doesn't detect what the partner is. Uh, so with no information on the partner of the breakpoint region, it may not necessarily reflect the entire biology or whether the fusion itself or the break is a functional uh, break or not. Um, and then on the other hand, you can have um, assays that test with PCR or with amplification and sequencing, um, and those would be real-time PCR and the next-generation sequencing methods. 
Um, the uh, both methods are good, except that one of them is low throughput. So real time PCR um, or or qPCR is is a low throughput method that requires um, the design to be specific for the fusion that is known. And as that, as I already explained, uh, sometimes you just do not know the partner, so it decreases the sensitivity of the assay for you to be able to detect every single fusion that is present. On the other hand, you could do next generation sequencing, which is the preferred method because it can detect many of the fusions uh, very broadly, uh, some of them not necessarily knowing the partner, um, but but the identification of the fusions fully depends on the design of the assay, and not all next-generation sequencing assays are created equal to be able to do this. So when testing for fusions, it is very important to understand what are the, the, the pros and cons of the specific assay that is being performed either in a local lab or in a laboratory that you're sending out to. Uh, very quickly, um, either immunohistochemistry, uh, FISH, or next-generation sequencing can be performed for all testing. Um, IHC is very rapid and provides an excellent assessment uh, for fusions with nearly 100% sensitivity and specificity. Um, cases that are positive by immunohistochemistry, they are either truly positive or, or, or truly negative, and there are only rare cases that have a weak positivity. And uh, However, these must be confirmed by another method, either FISH or a molecular assay um, from the ones that I just explained. Um, on the other hand, ROS1 is not as easy to test um, by immunohistochemistry. Immunohistochemistry usually um, would show, if you do have a fusion, um, a very strong um, staining. Um, and it is, it is highly sensitive, but the specificity is actually not as high. So um, unlike um, ALK, immunohistochemistry, you can have very, uh, you can have many false positive results. Um, and, uh, and then depending on the partner, you can also have a distribution of staining that may be either membranous or cytoplasmic or globular, and it could be very strong or diffuse. And this is actually reflecting the biology of these tumors and which one is the partner that, um, that ROS1 gene is associating with. Um, in many cases can actually have non-specific staining, and this is associated with a very high intrinsic expression of ROS1 in the wild-type condition for ROS1. So for this reason, the current guidelines recommend that ROS1 should only be used as a screening method, but any type of positive result must be confirmed by a molecular or a cytogenetic method. And I am happy to welcome uh, Dr. Alex Drillen uh, right now to, to uh, help us with the next session. Thanks very much, Maria, for a really wonderful talk. We'll very briefly go through a few questions, which I'm sure our listeners will be interested in. So the first, of course, would be which testing platform is preferred? Interrogate these cancers genomically, not just for ROS1 and ALK, of course, but considering the broader landscape of other oncogenes that might be actionable. Yeah, so usually the, the testing platform, because they're in, in lung carcinoma, you have so many genes that you actually have to test for. Um, a next generation sequencing assay is the best way to go so that you can test everything up front. Um, and because you generally need tissue to be able to do the initial diagnosis, it is preferred that you actually test tissue first. Um, because you can have a morphologic correlate to the diagnosis that you're that you're making. Um, but of course, if you do not have uh, tissue plasma-based testing uh, could be performed, but the assay has to be created in such a way that you can detect uh, fusions, uh, which may not necessarily be the case because you have to flank specific regions and you have to target those um, intronic regions as well to be able to detect them. Um, as far of the as, as far as the NGS test itself, um, you can actually do this with either DNA or RNA. And um, some fusions can be detectable by a DNA assay when it is uh, very well targeted and it's, it's also it has a design that will be able to detect most of these fusions. 
But in the absence of a fusion by DNA, it is uh, my, my recommendation would be that you reflex that to an, an RNA assay where you may be able to find a fusion that perhaps didn't have um, a partner that was targeted uh, by, the, uh, by the DNA assay. Um, RNA assays can come in many flavors, and there are some assays that will be able to detect uh, the fusions regardless of the partner that they have. One of uh, a, a, there are three, four different type of types of assays that that you could use. Um, so again, uh, to reiterate what I said before, it is very important that you actually know when you're testing these um, that the assay is created to be able to detect the fusions. Uh, and in a in, in a broad um, and sensitive way. So, so Alex, now a question uh, from me. Um, it, as you know, turnaround times for testing have historically been very challenging. Um, in in your clinical practice, what are some of the strategies that you integrate to try to improve the receipt of testing results? What do you typically do while you wait for these results uh, when you know that they're going to take a long time? Yeah, it really takes a, a, a more global view of what's going on with the patient. If it's someone that's very sick, then obviously we rely on rapid tests. You mentioned the turnaround time of plasma-based testing, but then there are also the ALK D5F3 uh, stain, which you mentioned, where you can get an answer very quickly. And in those cases, if you identify a driver, you move to targeted therapy. But in cases where you can't wait, then you move on to systemic therapy, like chemotherapy plus minus immunotherapy that can be very active. However, if a patient can wait for more comprehensive testing, then that's always the preferred route because you can choose the best first therapy to start. And if you identify an oncogene that can't be identified in early testing, then you at least triage your patient to the best possible treatment upfront. Yeah, and, and Alex, what do you do when a patient presents with suspected resistance? Uh, we know that there are some fusions that can actually appear at the at the time of resistance. And how how does this impact your approach in retesting the patient? The first thing I'll say is that this hasn't found its way into the guidelines and with very strong language. Definitely a lot of the guidelines revolve around early testing to identify these drivers, but we know the utility of interrogating the genome again of these cancers in the setting of resistance, because especially if you find on-target mechanisms like acquired kinase domain mutations, there are next generation agents designed to be active against these mutations. And we've seen clinical proof of principle across different fusion types of patients responding when they hop from one pill to another. So my personal approach is to resequence a biopsy and or do plasma circulating cell-free DNA in order to see which of these resistance mechanisms can help triage your patient to one therapy over another. Yeah, well, that's great. Thank you. You know, I, one more question. Um, in terms of the challenges, um, if any, that that you face when it comes to navigating the insurance coverage for things that are not yet in the guidelines, and reimbursement with regards to molecular testing in, in this setting? Thankfully, we've seen a trend towards less of that. Less and less we've had to sort of deal with challenging insurance denial. Uh, but of course, there are situations where certain payers don't provide coverage, uh, and often we have to write letters of medical necessity, et cetera. I think that if despite all of that, you're unable to get coverage for molecular testing, thankfully, a lot of uh, clinical trials actually offer testing. Uh, some of the, Many of these are being done in metastatic state, but some are even doing it for earlier stage disease for the neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy. So there are other channels or avenues to potentially explore if you can't get coverage by insurance. Great. Thank you so much. All right, so now we move into the treatment section where we're going to first focus on targeted therapy for ALK fusion positive lung cancers. And the first major section deals with first line TKI therapy. Here we're going to examine the design of the regulatory data sets that led to the approval or the presentation of the first major data sets for many of these agents. So here we have on this slide a summary, a schema 
of many different trials put together. This just really highlights to you that there's a common or shared study design between these regulatory trials. And you'll note on the left that we have patients obviously with a bona fide ALK fusion positive, non-small cell lung cancer, good functional capacity, and who are treatment naive with measurable disease. And you have the different trials here seen in dark red or light red. So in the dark red, you have the trials that led to the FDA approval of these TKIs. And then in the light red, you have a trial of a drug that's been reported out, but does not yet have approval within the United States. So for electinib, you have the Alex and J-Alex trials, brigatinib, ALTA1L, lerlatinib, the crown trial, and for insartinib, you have EXALT3. And each of these TKIs was randomized. So patients were randomized either to this next generation TKI or to the former standard of care, which is the first generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor, crizotinib. And another shared feature would be the primary endpoint on the right of progression-free survival with the typical secondary endpoints of response survival, CNS outcomes, and safety that we're gonna go through in the next couple of slides. So starting first with electinib on the ALEX trial, the top line result here is that if you look at the progression-free survival, electinib in the blue versus crizotinib in the red, you can drive a truck through these Kaplan-Meier curves showing that there are meaningful improvements in progression-free survival, survival with electinib, where you have a median of almost 35 months compared to a median progression-free survival of almost 11 months with crizotinib. Now, that occurred in patients with and without CNS metastases, the benefit where you saw the difference or the divergence. Uh, and here you see in the Japanese trial called J-ALEX a similar result where you see that the hazard ratio for electinib versus crizotinib uh, was a very nice number at 0.34 and 0.37 for the IRF assessed median PFS and actually the, the final median PFS um, in this trial. Just showing again that next generation of TKI therapy beats early generation TKI therapy with crizotinib. So moving through different TKIs, we're next going to look at the data for brigatinib, and this was the ALTA1L trial. Um, and while this table looks different, the punchline here is the same, that brigatinib did beat out crizotinib in terms of progression-free survival and several other outcomes on this study. And here you see a hazard ratio of 0.49, marching through the different pre-specified interim analyses. Now we move to the third drug, lorlatinib, on the CROWN trial. And this was obviously a more recent presentation following on the heels of the electinib and brigatinib presentations and publications. But again, here you see that with this, if you will, third generation LTKI lorlatinib, we're seeing a hazard ratio that's even lower at 0.28 compared to crizotinib. Again, with the smarter design of these next generation TKIs, which were built to include CNS coverage and activity against certain resistance mutations, we know that the preferred strategy is to reach for one of these next generation TKIs. And this next slide just shows you all of the TKIs stacked side by side. On the far right, you have the first gen drug, crizotinib in the profile, 1014 study, and then moving from right to left, you have seritinib in the SN4 study. We didn't discuss today. Um, as you can see here, this is an agent with intermediate activity between crizotinib and the three other drugs we discussed previously. But if you look at the FDA-approved agents, electinib, brigatinib, and verlatinib, you'll see very nice hazard ratios um, that are well below 0.5. In fact, with uh, lorlatinib, you're seeing the hazard ratio go to 0.28. So the punchline for practitioners is that these TKIs are available for use. And maybe in the questions, we can get into how to choose these agents, to so choose from these different agents. We shouldn't forget also the EXOT3 trial, which looked at insartinib, also next-gen TKI with similar results where it beat crizotinib. Now, one feature that's important that was baked into these next-generation TKIs is coverage of the CNS. Um, and we know here in this slide that if you look at the cumulative incidence of CNS progression or intracranial progression-free survival, that again, the curves diverge 
between chrysotinib in red and the later generation TKIs, electinib, brigadinib, and lorlatinib. And this is good for patients. You have protection of the sanctuary site from the acquisition of metastases, and also this uh, serves as an opportunity to treat intracranial disease, uh, knowing that these, these cancers do have a proclivity for CNS-PREM. Now, ALK-TKI therapy versus chemo, in case you were to ask, this has been explored with chrysotinib randomization to CRIS versus PEM-CIS or carboplatin was done on that profile 1014 study we mentioned, and TKI therapy beat out chemotherapy. So, of course, now we know that target therapy is the preferred approach over cytotoxic chemotherapy. This was echoed in the ascent for seritinib study, where again, randomizing patients to seritinib versus chemotherapy, you have an improvement in your progression-free survival with targeted therapy versus chemotherapy. Just really summarizing that uh, when an ALK fusion is identified and that's known, the targeted therapy should be used first, preferably with one of the three drugs that we mentioned earlier, electinib, brigadinib, or lorlatinib. Is there a role, however, for sequential TKI therapy? And the answer is yes, especially in patients who might get a drug like electinib or brigadinib, for example, who develop acquired on-target or kinase intrinsic resistance. We know that agents like lorlatinib have FDA approval in the second or third line space. And we've seen substantial activity in patients with acquired kinase domain mutations that render resistance to the earlier generation agents, but for which lorlatinib has activity. And there are newer generation agents that are currently in development that may add to the list that we currently have on clinical trials. Finally, a brief word on safety. Many of these TKIs are amenable to chronic administration and are tolerable. And here in the slide, you will see, however, that there is a somewhat different profile of AEs if you look across the TKIs. You might see a little more transaminitis with electinib, pulmonary events with bradatinib, which is why you do a step-up dose uh, by way of the recommended dose um, of the drug. Lorlatinib, you see hypercholesterolemia, cognitive changes, and of course, with seritinib at the full dose, you can see gastrointestinal side effects. Would you mind providing a, a brief recap of the current clinical practice guideline recommendations for out-targeted agents in the first and subsequent uh, lines of therapy, including the recent addition of loratinib and um, the CROWN trial? Yep, we'll try to keep it very focused and simple. When you know a patient has an ALK fusion and they're treatment naive, the preferred initial strategy is targeted therapy. Of the targeted therapies, electinib, brigatinib, and lorlatinib currently have regulatory approval, and any of those would be a reasonable choice for a patient who's TKI naive. In subsequent lines of therapy, my personal preference is to consider the genomics of the cancer. And if you're seeing off-target resistance or polyclone resistance, perhaps reach for chemotherapy, plus minus immunotherapy. However, if you're clearly seeing on-target resistance, then going from a drug like electinib or brigatinib to lorlatinib that covers a wider swath of resistance mutations uh, is something that I would do. Great. And for patients that have ALK, that are ALK positive, can you share your approach for treatment selection and how you differentiate among the currently available all-targeted agency, uh, agents and uh, both for uh, front and subsequent lines of therapy? Yeah, I'll say no one has really put down their penny and said, you must do this one pill. And it's a bit of an art deciding in clinic. So this is, it comes down, I think, to the tolerability and sort of comorbidities that patients have. If someone has very bad lungs and you're worried about the pulmonary events that might occur with brigatinib, I might do electinib. Um, if you start out with a drug like electinib and see the transaminitis, then it's reasonable to switch to one of the other TKIs. Uh, many have talked about the utility of lorlatinib, and certainly it has the best hazard ratio of the three. However, we do see a very high frequency of hyperlipidemia, and you have cognitive changes. And so there's the argument that has been made that tolerability might not be as great as with electinib or brigatinib. Uh, but still, if you want to be uh, aggressive in, in someone uh, who you may have started the lorlatinib without tolerability issues, 
you know, it certainly bodes well for possibly staying on the treatment for longer, even though we have no head-to-head -head comparisons. Now, what about the challenges with brain metastasis and lung cancer? Can you share your perspective on the intracranial responses across the available TKIs? I'm very happy that drug design has caught up with this question of sanctuary site coverage, and we've seen the data that these drugs can work very well in the CNS, both against existing disease and for the prevention of the acquisition of metastatic disease. So unlike crizotinib, which you would argue could be suboptimal, I think that elecnib, brigatinib, and lorlatinib give you that extra confidence that you're covering the CNS compartment. Great, thank you. You're welcome. All right, let's move right into our virtual tumor board and we'll try to go through one case study. I'll ask you some questions and you'll ask me some questions as we go along. For the audience, we have a 32-year-old female never smoker, presents with a three centimeter lung mass, widespread uh, disease with multiple intrathoracic lymph nodes, liver and bone metastases, a biopsy of a liver met shows adenocarcinoma, consistent with a lung primary, high pdl one expression at 95%, and outside molecular testing shows no EGFR mutations, KRAS wild type, and plasma ctDNA testing returns quote-unquote negative. Maria, from a diagnostic perspective, what do you think is the best next step? So, so yeah, so for a patient that um, has been tested with very targeted, with a very targeted assay, so in this case, um, just EGFR and KRS, um, then I think the best step, the best next step is to do next generation sequencing to be able to profile that broadly. Um, the plasma uh, ctDNA testing, even though it uh, it came back negative, as you know, there is just a very um, large difference, biological difference on how much uh, different patients with lung cancers do shed um, cell-free DNA in circulation. Um, so any negative results should be interpreted as a false negative until proven otherwise. Wonderful, and that's exactly what they did. The tumor was sent for next generation sequencing using a DNA-based assay and a comprehensive evaluation, including fusion, interrogation, mutations, copy number changes in hundreds of genes was unremarkable for an oncogenic driver. Maria, what should someone consider doing in this situation? Yeah, so given that this was a next generation sequencing assay that was, that was DNA-based, um, depending on the assay, of course, my next um, approach would be to test on RNA to ensure that we didn't miss any type of fusions. Great, and that's also exactly what they did. Leftover tumor was sent for RNA-based targeted sequencing. They then found an EML4-ALK canonical fusion, and an MRI of the brain showed a few sub-centimeter lesions. So Alex, the patient is now is asymptomatic except for a mild cough. Um, in a patient like this, what is your preferred treatment? I would really reach for a targeted therapy first. And we discussed the three options, electinib, brigatinib, and lorlatinib. Like I said, there's currently no correct answer, but for a patient like this, I might start with electinib, which we know would cover the extracranial disease, but also would cover the intracranial disease. So this patient was treated with brigatinib and had two years of disease control with therapy. But then thereafter, a solitary bone metastasis with a substantial sub-tissue component uh, begins to grow. Um, what, what do we do with a patient like this? Yeah, so I'll ask you what you think as well, but I would prefer to do a biopsy of that soft tissue component, and then I would send it your way. Yeah, so I think it, what the key thing here, um, I, I think, is the fact that it's a bone metastasis. So. Uh, from the testing perspective, testing bone metastasis is a difficult thing because usually these lesions tend to be decalcified and they end up uh, having either a failure of testing or they have a false negative which is associated with some of the uh, fibroblasts or fibro, um, the fibrous component of the biopsy uh, being the one that, that um, provides the DNA component for the testing. So. Um, when testing bone lesions, it is very important to ensure that the biopsy is obtained and that there is explicit information for the lab to ensure that it doesn't get decalcified and that the testing become, it gets done in, um, so in uh, tissue that um, is either fresh 
or decalcified without acid, uh, such as EDTA, for example. And so to end the story, the biopsy confirmed lung adenocarcinoma and molecular profiling showed that the ALK fusion was still there, but now with the acquired ALK G1202R mutation. And the final question is, what's the next therapeutic step? And of course, we know, as has been mentioned, that lorlatinib has activity against resistance mutations, including G1202R. So I would sequence this patient on the lorlatinib on progression. But the, the, the last thing I'll say is that if this were solitary, true solitary site progression, I would probably radiate that MET first and continue the brigatinib until more widespread progression, after which I would consider switching the lorlatinib, just highlighting the utility of local therapy in the face of solitary or oligo progression. In the last section, we're gonna to switch to ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers and tell you the data surrounding targeted therapy in this space. We'll start with this first table that shows you different ROS1 TKIs that have been explored in different trials that are listed in the third column there for patients with ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers. For your reference, the publications are listed off to the right, so you can check them out. But we'll start by walking back to the definition of generation. And as you've heard in the last section, crizotinib was thought to be a first-gen ALK-TKI. Then you have second-gen drugs like electinib, for example. And then you have later generation agents like lorlatinib. It doesn't quite work out like that in the ROS1 space. So don't equate the generation that you attribute in the ALK space to the ROS1 TKI space. And here in this slide, you'll see actually that drugs have different potencies. So we'll call out brigatinib, which is not a first generation drug, but you see here that the IC50s against ROS1 are in the same range as crizotinib. So it really challenges our view of generation when we move from oncogenic driver to oncogenic driver. And here you'll see that lorlatinib is still considered a later generation drug along with repotrectinib, but everything else, the IC50 seemed to drift above that, meaning be higher or, or less potent against ROS1. So keep that in mind. Uh, with that being said, the early generation ROS1 TKIs, and we're gonna call those crizotinib, entrectinib, seritinib, and brigatinib, have been explored in prospective clinical trials. You see here that very interestingly, the objective response rates seem to cluster, right? Around the high 60s to the 70s um, across many of these programs. The other thing also is that the median progression-free survival, uh, the numbers for many of these trials are in the order again of around 16 uh, to a little over uh, uh, 22 months. And so what we haven't seen quite yet here that you saw earlier with ALK is that any of these early gen TKIs have really exceeded dramatically the activity that we see with crizotinib. But in terms of selection, of course, there are certain features such as CNS coverage that we'll get to in a later slide that might make you pick one of these drugs over another. Before we leave the slide, just a quick reminder that only crizotinib and entrectinib have regulatory approval for ROS1 fusion positive lung cancers, um, and the others as yet do not. So here in the next slide, echoing what we saw with ALK, you see the comparison of ROS1 TKIs against chemotherapy. And as opposed to the prospective studies that you saw earlier, here you'll see retrospective series, knowing that ROS1 is a less frequent event compared to ALK. Um, that have shown that if you compare crizotinib to platinum-based chemotherapy, that again, you see an improvement with targeted therapy, underlining that we should choose targeted therapy in this space when we know that a ROS1 fusion is present rather than chemotherapy. But like I said in the last slide, uh, one thing to keep in mind when we choose between these targeted therapies is coverage for the CNS. And arguably, one of the most developed data sets for CNS coverage of the early gen TKIs is in trectinib. You see that this trial was enriched for patients with baseline brain metastases, 43% 
um, had known brain metastases at trial entry compared to much lower frequencies for crizotinib and the other drugs. And even though those top-line results seem to be comparable if you look at certain series, knowing that the intractinib trial was enriched for bad actors with CNS disease, but still the report card was comparable to the other agents, I tend to prefer this drug over crizotinib for a ROS1 TKI naive patient. And you see the intracranial response on the upper right as, long, as well as the time to CNS progression on the lower right. And this is one retrospective series that showed that when you look at real-world evidence, if you compare crizotinib to entrectinib, that you do see a divergence in the curves for time, the treatment, discontinuation, and also in overall survival, providing a substrate, again, for uh, making the decision to potentially choose entrectinib as the TKI of choice in the TKI naive space. Now, the guidelines aren't concrete about choosing entrectinib over crizotinib, but these are the things I think about when I choose one of these TKIs for my patients. Now, this is a, a summative slide where you see graphically in the bubble plot all of the early generation uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors against ROS1 stacked up against the next generation drugs like repotrectinib and talotrectinib in the purple and the blue. And the point here that we're trying to make is, especially if you include lorlatinib in the orange, when you look at objective response rate, things again seem to cluster, but they do so as well for median progression free survival. And I think the bar for the approval of one of these later generation agents as a replacement for crizotinib or entrectinib will really be contingent on a meaningful improvement in progression-free survival, which we have yet to see with the next generation agents. We hope that with more mature data, you'll see that the ends here are very low for the next generation drugs, that we might see that divergence that we saw with ALK, but we need to uh, uh, sit tight and wait to see how the data matures in this space. Thankfully, there are things that the next generation drugs still uh, remain good for if you don't use them in the TKI naive space. And that, again, parallels what we spoke about in ALK, that on-target resistance can be acquired with ROS1 TKI therapy. This is in the form of acquired ROS1 kinase domain mutations that are displayed here. And thankfully, these next generation agents like repotrectinib, for example, talotrectinib, have been designed with a shared feature of a smaller macrocycle that avoids the steric penalties of these substitutions that occur as a result of these mutations. And so you effectively re-engage the kinase domain and shut down oncogenic signal. And as such here on the next slide, you are seeing on the lower left this time overlaid on the data that we saw in the prior slide um, that we are seeing activity in TKI pretreated cases with repotrectinib um, and lorlatinib, including talotrectinib there in the red. So there is a, a potential for us to do sequential TKI therapy as is the case with ALK fusion positive lung cancers. Finally, a word on safety before we end this section. It's currently unclear what the consequences are of ROS1 inhibition in non-neoplastic cells. So in simple terms, we don't quite know what the side effects are of pure ROS1 inhibition. If you look at the preclinical studies, there are a few things that are called out that don't really make their way in a side effect profile of these drugs. And the other reason we don't really know is that all of the drugs that are currently available in clinical trials that we know about are multi-kinase agents that also inhibit other kinases. So you have the confounding effect of inhibiting TRAC that can give you a certain profile of AEs, MET that can do the same thing, and ALK. Uh, so just something to keep in mind that's an interesting nugget about the biology and as it relates to safety in the clinic. Thank you so much, Alex. Can you um, provide a recap of the clinical practice guidelines for ROS1 testing and the recommended use of ROS1 targeted agents? Thankfully, a lot of the learnings in AL can directly be applied to ROS1, and it's the same shebang. If you know that a ROS1 fusion is present, the recommendation is to start with targeted therapy, there are two approved agents, crizotinib 
and entrectinib by the US FDA. And I've shared my personal preference for picking, even though there's no strong recommendation in the guidelines. I tend to choose entrectinib because of that potential element of CNS coverage. I would certainly do it if someone had a flat out brain metastases at diagnosis, just leveraging the data that we've seen. In the subsequent uh, post-TKI space where patients have progressed, I would think about resequencing the cancer, looking to see if certain mutations are acquired, because now we have clinical trials of repotrectinib, talotrectinib, and actually in the NCCN guidelines, we have the potential use of lerlatinib in the TKI refractory setting, where we've seen proof of concept that patients have responded to a second pill after progressing on a first pill. So, Alex, is there a role for other treatments, uh, such as uh, chemo, for these patients? Yeah, absolutely. And we've shown that pemetrexid-containing chemotherapy, that maybe platinum doublet inclusive, can work very well for ROS1. So if you've exhausted your TKI options, going to platinum pemetrexid backbone, um, with or without a third agent, is something that I would certainly do, and we've seen it work. Immunotherapy, I would hesitate to give it by itself because we've seen that these cancers tend to be TMB low. And when you look at responses to immune checkpoint inhibitors, the batting average is also very low. So if I were to consider immunotherapy, I would probably consider chemotherapy and immunotherapy together rather than giving immunotherapy by itself. Okay, great. Thank you. Now we move on to the final section of this presentation where we have our virtual tumor board too, and we have a ROS1 case for you. A 65-year-old male, former 50-pack-year smoker, presents with multiple bilateral pulmonary nodules and brain metastases. A biopsy of a lung nodule shows adenocarcinoma consistent with a lung primary, and a contralateral nodule biopsy is morphologically similar. DNA-based NGS finds no actionable drivers except unequivocal complex ROS1 rearrangement of unknown significance. Maria, what would you do in this situation? Yeah, so in this case, I think that um, you can uh, do an RNA-based assay would be my next thing uh, for testing. So um, the, the fact that you, if you do find diffusion, then that means that diffusion has been transcribed and is more likely to be uh, something that is productive and, and perhaps actionable. Um, and I think that you could, you could uh, of course, test as well by immunohistochemistry, but I think that the role of immunohistochemistry for something like this would not be um, as helpful. I, I would say the RNA assay would be the best thing to do. All right, so um, it so happened that, you know, this patient actually had a, um, a FISH testing, which confirmed the ROS1. Um, and just to mention that you can also do, of course, FISH testing, but FISH testing does not necessarily provide what the partner um, is going to be. And then, of course, uh, this patient not only had the ROS1 uh, probe break apart probe by FISH, but also had the RNA-based uh, targeted sequencing. And this actually found a fusion involving um, EZR um, and ROS1. So while testing was being performed, a local oncologist began uh, carboplatin, uh, pemetrexid, and pembro uh, with a notable response after two cycles. So Alex, now that you have um, these results of the molecular testing, what is the next therapeutic approach? This is a very common question because sometimes the molecular findings come back after you've started therapy. And my answer is always, if it works very well and you do a scan showing that the chemoimmunotherapy, you've achieved an optimal response, I would just continue through until progression or intolerability and then consider switching the targeted therapy. However, if you do a scan and the response is suboptimal from the get-go, I would very quickly switch to targeted therapy. And as I mentioned, my preference would be to use a TKI, the TKI intractinib. All right, so, so that's exactly what happened with this patient. The chemoimmunotherapy was continued for one year, after which uh, widespread progression was noted. And the patient developed a new liver lesion that was biopsied, but was inadequate, and a second biopsy was not deemed feasible. 
So um, in this case, plasma um, was uh, was tested for circulating tumor DNA, and this identified a ROS1 um, G2032R uh, mutation. However, the ROS1 fusion was not detected. Um, so does the absence of a ROS1 fusion preclude any further ROS1-directed therapy? Not at all. And I'm going to throw this back to you in a second to see what your thoughts are. But in this case, the ROS1 fusion is likely there, but possibly not detected on the blood test. And so I would take the G2032R mutation as evidence of on-target resistance and consider a next-generation TKI like ribotrectinib or talotrectinib has been shown in the laboratory to have activity against this. But Marie, I'm curious if you see this situation where plasma may not pick up a fusion, but something else pops up. Yeah, actually, this is this is a very common finding. Uh, so, as you know, the uh, the fragments of tumor that are circulating in plasma um, are very small fragments, and um, designing an assay sometimes to target um, very fragmented uh, DNA is uh, is extremely difficult, and you may end up with a, a false negative. Um, because the template is just very low and fusions are just difficult to characterize uh, with a cell-free DNA assay. So I, I think that, of course, the, the fact that this resistance mutation is there, um, it, uh, it, it basically tells you that the ROS1 fusion is still there, it's just not detected by the assay, and that's purely due to um, the, the limitations of the technology. Thanks, Maria, and thanks to everyone for joining this program. We're going to end with a few takeaways, and I'm going to ask you, Maria, to give your potentially diagnostic takeaway on the fusions, and I'll end with my therapeutic takeaway for our listeners. Yeah, so for the, uh, for the, from the, the testing perspective, um, it is extremely important to uh, recognize what the limitations are for testing. And um, because of there are so many fusions, so many partners, and there is high uh, biologic variability, um, it is important to choose an assay that can provide a broad assessment upfront. Um, if you have a very small biopsy, it is better to just utilize a next generation sequencing assay that can um, detect these um, as, as fast as possible and in a broad manner. Um, from from the testing, I think that that is the, the very key feature. And of course, once you find these fusions, it's very important to highlight that targeted therapy is the way to go. And you've seen the data on many of these TKIs that are highly active, high response rates, long progression free, and overall survival and activity in the brain. Uh, so that would be my preference. And Finally, in the resistance setting, because of intelligent drug design, we have next generation pills that are able to overcome the penalties of resistance mutations that might be acquired with the earlier generation agents. And with that, we end our program. Thank you so much for joining us again, and I hope this was helpful to all of you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.